I think for me, when I reflect now on those early stages of um, wanting to write the book, I think it, I know that it was a therapeutic right that I needed to do for my myself, but to honour my late son and to do something good with the story, the, the real life story. And if I take myself back into the classroom when I was teaching, for example, a year nine group or a year eight class, there was often stuff in the syllabus that we did about people who had people who were very famous, Mother Teresa, um, you know, people who'd done very great um, th- philanthropic work um, in different fields. And I remember one people saying to me, um, Mrs. BP, because I was always called Mrs. BP and I've always been called EBP by my friends. They would say, they would say, what does it mean to be driven to do something? How can you be driven to do something? Because you'd hear you'd hear this this word driven that, you know, for example, Mother Teresa is, is you know, somebody who is highly uh, profiled and driven to do the work that she she did and continues to do with the missionary sisters. But I think I I identify that with that with that now, all these years later, that there was something driving me that I wanted to take that story and make something positive from it. And I think that helped me to process the finality of Nicholas's death and his loss and the impact that it had on me as his mum and the wider family. Welcome to the latest episode of the Resilience Toolbox. Known as the art of recovering from an incident, resilience is crucial to human coping mechanisms following a life event, traumatic or negative experience, or simply everyday struggles. Not only does it shape how we bounce back, it also affects the way we think, feel and act in everyday situations. Today, I'm joined by an incredible lady who I've had the pleasure of meeting a few times now and have been inspired by her resilience, her story and her work. Elizabeth Burton Phillips, MBE, is founder of the Nicholas Mills Foundation, operating as drug fam who provide a lifeline of safe and caring support to families, friends and partners affected by someone else's drug, alcohol or gambling problems. Elizabeth founded the charity following immense pain and trauma. In 2004, she lost Nick, one of her twin sons, to suicide. Elizabeth was a teacher and an ordinary mother who never imagined that her twin sons, Nick and Simon, would be involved in drugs. Following Nick's tragic death, Elizabeth has campaigned continuously to raise awareness of the harm caused to families by drug addiction and to influence policy and practice so that the needs of families are better recognised and met. She's gone on to write a book with her son, Simon, who is now drug-free, to share their heartbreaking and chilling story, which is called Mum, Can You Lend Me 20 Quid? has been given numerous awards, including the Queen's Award for Voluntary Service. Today, we'll be chatting about Elizabeth's experiences, her resilience, coping with trauma, self-care and strength, as well as the amazing support available through DrugFam. So welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you, Helen. Normally, I say, is there anything I've missed? And uh, I happened for the extensive uh, knowledge of you and the time I've spent with you. There's all sorts I've missed. But um, I think the better question is, is that a fair summary? 
Um, yes, I think so. Yes. I mean, I, I tend not to think about it in that way because um, we're 17 years on now since Nicholas died and we're very much focused on the here and now and the day-to-day -day work and the volume of work um, that we're responding to, particularly as a result of COVID. Yeah. Um, so um, thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, I'd like to concentrate when we do talk primarily on, on Nicholas and his legacy um, rather than detracting and going down you know, other routes which are not relevant to this this podcast today. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. So so I've obviously read your book, as you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, people often talk in terms of superlatives around, you know, that's sort of heart-rendering um, and, and ca captivating and chilling. And but, but actually, as someone who's a guilty, I've got three chapters in and then a drop book reader and I've got mountains of books for that. I genuinely, from the heart, mean I read it end to end. Um, and uh, we talked earlier that it, it was such a powerful book and as a parent, so powerful that um, we talked about it should be on the syllabus for the national curriculum. Um, so so um, I'll start by saying you know, thank you for giving us um, a gift in a sense. It's an odd word for that, but, but putting up out there and sharing your story because it is literally so powerful and moving and um so for those who haven't read it and by the way it is still for sale and please do buy it everyone um uh, because it, it it you won't regret it um for those who haven't read the book would you mind just giving a, a bit of context with the story about nick specifically as you say yes um Mum, can you lend me 20 quid? Um, what Drugs Did to My Family is, is the title of the book. And I think that the, the subtitle, if you like, the What Drugs Did to My Family is uh, very important for everyone to be aware of because um, lots of things can happen in young people's lives that um, they think mum and dad don't need to know about. And certainly when we were going through this difficult time in our lives, a lot of which we didn't know about until it was too late. Um, it, it highlights um, that the drugs and alcohol and gambling are equal opportunities destroyers of family lives. And um, the impact on families is, is so profound um, that um, you often only wake up and smell the coffee when it's too late. And uh, certainly I found myself as a teacher wanting to commit to paper, wanting to write down what had happened to us as an ordinary teacher, an ordinary mum, an ordinary person, so that it could be used as a tool to help other families not have to go through this. Is that a fair, fair comment at this point, Helen? Uh, absolutely. And, and I think um, the striking thing is, so before reading the book and knowing your story, and obviously we both know someone um, uh, in our private lives who's been helped by the charity. Um, and actually, until you've been exposed to it, I would say there were certain sort of biases where people go, oh, drug addiction is only confined to people who've messed their own lives up deliberately on the street. Do you know what I mean? And kind of a, a superior view about snotty echelons of society, but it's not that, is it? Not at all. Um... You know, I've worked, I've been privileged to work in education for all my life. Um, some, it's 
in state school, but I've also had some wonderful jobs in the private sector. And what often happens is people have um, judgments, preconceived ideas about um, who who a person is that takes drugs and or, or drink or um, it has addictions in those areas of drugs, drink and alcohol. And um, they they think it's never going to happen to them. There's a kind of assumption that it could never happen to them because they're doing the right thing with their yeah. own families and looking after their own families. And I think the key thing is to try to help them, families, all families across the UK and beyond, as we have done, is that... Um, it can happen to anyone, and in the in the education system, there. I think I've seen it, and it's so many private schools have said this to me that the parents of private schools, you know, you, we've put our child, our son or daughter, into this school because we know they'll be safe, and by going through the system within the sector, we know that they'll be kept safe, perhaps more safe than they would be in a state comprehensive school, and that isn't the case at all. Um, not at all. So educating parents and helping them to understand the dangers now that are in the modern world yeah. um, of 2021, which were very different, in fact, um, to 30 years ago um, when we were going through this with with our, our boys. Um, and I think for me, when I reflect now on those early stages of um, wanting to write the book, I think it, I know that it was a therapeutic right that I needed to do for my myself, but to honour my late son and to do something good with the story, the, the real life story. And if I take myself back into the classroom when I was teaching, for example, a year nine group or a year eight class, there was often stuff in the syllabus that we did about people who had people who were very famous, Mother Teresa, um, you know, people who'd done very great um, th philanthropic work um, in different fields. And I remember one people saying to me, um, Mrs. BP, because I was always called Mrs. BP, and I've always been called EBP by my friends. They would say, they would say, what does it mean to be driven to do something? How can you be driven to do something? Because you'd hear, you'd hear this, this word driven that, you know, for example, Mother Teresa is, is you know, somebody who that's highly uh, profiled and driven to do the work that she, she did and continues to do with the missionary sisters. But I think I, I identify that with that, with that now, all these years later, that there was something driving me that I wanted to take that story and make something positive from it. And I think that helped me to process the finality of Nicholas's death and his loss and the impact that it had on me as his mum and the wider family. And so I would say that the book was the driving force that came first, followed by the charity. Um, and all these years later, um, the book's in several languages. It's been adapted as a play and the charity is still surviving and um, we're helping numerous people and um, it's really ramped up as a result of COVID. Yes. Um, I have some, some interesting um, and alarming um, figures 
for you um, if you'd like me to just give you an idea. So um, during the previous three months of this year, we've had 3,510 telephone calls that have been made to our helpline number, which is actually an increase of 45% from this time last year. And in terms of email support, we're set to handle around 10,000 support emails, and that's going to be an increase of 27% from 2020. And it's a 150% increase from 2019. And the consultations that we do as one-to-ones, we're set to deliver 600 one-to-one consultations. And that's going to be an increase of 17% from 2020 and 233% since 2019. And the number of bereaved people that we are supporting has increased by 50% before and as of yesterday, I think we were 168 bereaved families since the 23rd of 20th of March, 2020. That's incredible. And, then it comes, and, and, and please help me to understand. So I can obviously understand um, that lockdown was awful for so many people. So yeah. is it a case... Is it a case that, that that sort of pressure, stress, depression dynamic then meant people turned to seek, quotes help in, in different ways that perhaps isn't best for them? Is that right? Or what's your understanding of it? Is I think um, my, my understanding of it is that um, the pandemic and lockdown was something that we, as a world, as a society, and in the UK in particular, obviously we'd never experienced anything like that yeah. before. And... Um, the pressures um, during lockdown on family members and friends who've got a loved one in addiction um, ramped up significantly um, because, you know, we weren't allowed, we were all in lockdown. And so, you know, where were the drugs, the drink and everything going to to come from uh, and the opportunities? And so it's like a double-sided sword in a way in that the families who had a loved one living with them were impacted by the behaviours um, that go with with addiction, and um, some family members elected to allow a loved one to live with them during lockdown because it was a very isolating and unhappy time on both sides, and um, it's so easily emotionally and financially entrapped. In, in that kind of situation um, when you've got a loved one in addiction. Yeah. And um, in your book, you, you, you know, you sort of talked about the role of enabling. And, yes. And it, and that resonates with me from what you're saying there, because as, again, someone who so far, with a six-year-old, so far, fortunately, hasn't been exposed to, to addiction in that way. Um, I'd never thought of it that way. So, I think, yeah. oh, I'll, I'll help them out. I'll be there for them. And yeah. actually, interestingly, with what you were saying, that enabling can have the exact opposite effect. Is that right? Yes, it it can indeed. Um, the amount of people that um, I've since met who've successfully gone through rehab have said, um, one of our, in fact, one of our volunteers um, who helps in a group support, he he will tell. Um, family members that the longer you're 
parents or pe- people in your family enable you, the longer you're promoting that addiction. And it, it is so true, but it's our natural instinct as parents, mothers, carers, fathers, and so on, to want to help your child be their young or in their 20s, 30s or whatever. That's that it's the natural instinct, isn't it, to want to fix it. And it, you know, we know that if your if your child is in an accident or has, you know, some horrific illness, you naturally want to care for them and, and sort sort their life out to make it as as painless and as comfortable as possible and the families that come to us by the time they reach us are often broken um, emotionally and financially and psychologically because they have not understood that they um, didn't cause this addiction yes um that they have not understood that they can't cure it or control it. And that's what they want to do. They want to cure it. Mm. They want to control it. And they believe, unfortunately, that they've caused it. It's it's their fault in some kind of way. And that's what we're what we're able to help them with and help them to understand that the importance of boundaries and um taking care of themselves in order to be resilient Mm. to cope with maybe having more than one person in the family who has a problem um, with using drugs, alcohol or gambling. And and, and in your experience, because it's fascinating, I completely see what you're saying about sort of control and and, 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 and the role that you want want to play as a parent. Um, At what point did it, did you become aware that it wasn't your fault or responsibility or did you always know or has it taken time? Was it part of a process? What, what was that for you, that realisation? I think it's, um, for me, I have to say that um, when I spoke to my local GP and he said, this was before Nicholas died, he said to me, I think that it would help you to have some counselling. Yeah. Um, I think that was a really important turning point for me to be able to go once a week to um, a lady, lady, a very experienced lady counsellor who um, I was able to offload to. And I think that did me a huge amount of good um, because all around me were family members swirling with, you should do this, you should do that, you shouldn't do this, you should do that, and so on. But to yeah. go to somebody who is actually almost emotionally detached that gets to know you as an individual um, and that can understand where your head is. Um, And I think that I will always remember that of being great value. And in fact, after Nicholas died, I continued for a year with her. um, And I knew myself when I was ready to fly free um, without counselling because um, you know processing the loss of a twin is is very difficult um particularly when they're identical because in the one that survives you see the one that's gone and um it, it's uh that was very important yes no and, and thank you for sharing that because um again in in, in sort of culturally in our society again you also get also this sort of stiff upper lip will mm. Um, and 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 then also understandably as a parent, it's about them. But actually, it's okay to say it's not okay for you, isn't it? Because that's right. 
yourself. You're looking after them. Yes. And, and, you know, what, what the story shows in the book, and I wanted it, wanted it to be very clear was that you go down and down and down and down. Mm. And eventually when I look back now, I'm very, very open about it, but my behavior mirrored the addict's behavior in that because they were secret about it, I was secret about it. And, you know, there were things that I kept from people and things um, that I kept from my husband and so on. And um, that I wouldn't, wouldn't normally have done. Um, but that's, that's unfortunately what we hear on the phones um, and from, from the people who come to our groups and so on. That's unfortunately something that it's, there's no handbook for. <laughs> there's no guide to how, you know, there's no book that says how to deal with your son or daughter or family member or loved one. Uh, partners on if they if they are using drugs or alcohol there isn't a handbook um but there is us <laughs> yes now I, I, i've got quite a few questions about the charity that i'll move on on to to shortly um and and, and interesting for, for me the other key sort of lesson that I, I took from your book was around the role of the people who were responsible for providing said drugs and it was, I was quite shocked by kind of the strategic nature by which they inculcated um, yes. their lives. And, yeah. and, it, and, and so people who haven't read the book and, and really, 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 really short, it starts off, quote, quite innocently, you know, this guy coming buying people drinks, I'm a nice person, to, you know, and, and kind of getting them to warm to them to, oh, it's just a bit of weed. And, 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 it, it, it's scary to, to yeah. see the, the very, very underhand, divisive, manipulative and strategic mm. ways these people go about essentially wrecking lives for their own financial benefit. Yes, it's it's unfortunate um, fact, but um, it is a business model that they have. <laughs> and yeah. that, that business model, of course, has moved on. Um, and we have the whole problem of county lines now, um, which is where they're, you know, if you like a sort of pyramid triangle idea, um, you know, people are sent into areas to groom young people into delivering drugs. And um, it's, it's, it is a business um, for those that often are at the top of the tree. They may not necessarily be using drugs themselves, but it's a business. And that's why we need to, you know, keep on educating uh, young people um, who are the most vulnerable in, at the at school age and their parents as well. Yes, yes. Because uh, the amount of young people now that have a credit card that can get money, you know, out the hole in the wall um, yeah. is, is very huge and voluminous compared to perhaps when we were going through the same experience with, with our sons. Yeah, and I guess it sort of speaks to the point you said about private schools, which is if they're thinking of a business, businesses are going to target people with money and it might be vulnerable in different ways, I should imagine, if that's right. That's, that's absolutely right, yes. I mean, um, and it's something that um, I'm pleased to say in a lot of the private schools and public schools that I've spoken into, the parents have said thank you to me for all the honesty of, um, that I bring to them in the sense that um, if they are a wealthy family and they children get a lot of spending money and they've got 
Visa cards, how vulnerable they are um, to getting money out the wall if they're offered something. And it's also about helping those family members and the young people to understand that it's not like they're being offered a, uh, a paracetamol, for example, or a medicine that you can buy from the chemist where it's got a description of the content and how much you should take it so time, so many times a day, that kind of thing. What they're being offered is not in a package often. It's a tablet. It's, you know, it's it doesn't come with a sort of um, safety warning. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so... Um, as a parent, then, what what should a parent look out for? I bet you get asked this a lot. So it's like, right, we see all this. What, what sorts of things should a parent be alert to, or behaviourally, what should a parent be doing? Well, the first thing, the first thing I think that's very important, and I can send you some information on this as well if it will help. I don't know if you'd want, want to put it with the podcast, but I think yeah. that it's really important to understand that you it. To have the conference conversation with a teenager is so much more valuable than to have the confrontation. Mm. So if you start from a position of having an open conversation with your teenage children, I think that that really is a, a positive starting point because often the conversation can start with, you know, what have you been doing? Why 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 have I seen cigarettes around? Um, uh, you know, I found this in your pocket, that kind of thing. That it can often be an aggressive conversation. Mm. My view would be to strip right back and to, and I say this in the PowerPoint that I use in the schools, is to let's talk about actions and consequences and how every action has a consequence. And all the actions that are positive generally bring positive consequences. Yes, they might bring the occasional disappointment if you want to get, you know, grade eight in your flute exam and you get only get, you know, you don't quite pass that. But generally speaking, all actions that are positive will bring positive consequences. So if you start with trying to help them to understand that negative actions can often bring negative consequences, and particularly when you start to look at the business model around cigarettes, for example, because the business model is nicotine, and that is the addiction. And if you mix other drugs with the nicotine, how much more strong are they going to be? And that's when we talk about splits and, and so on, smoking cannabis and um, how much stronger it is today and how it's a very different world in 2021. Um, in terms of uh, mental health issues, the, the openness and the discussion around mental health issues. So I, I'm very much come from the point of having that conversation rather than confrontation and to create the opportunity always for your teenage son or daughter to come and talk to you if they've got worries or if they've been approached because if they if they take the view that um my sons did and many of the family members that we knew at the time um they, they know that they're perhaps doing something that is wrong, but they think, well, our parents don't need to know. We just have, it's just a bit of a laugh. It's all, it's a bit of wacky and so on. And they don't see the long-term implications of how that can lead into other drugs and other tablets and, and so on. So does that, does that help 
in the yes, question. Very, very much. Believe me, it's all getting clocked because, um, I, you know, again, all, all, all I'm doing is just not, not my work hat. I'm, I've got my mum hat on. Yes. I'm, I'm thinking of my child and his yeah. character. And, and I'm also thinking about how I'd react. And I guess um, personally, it's overcoming the, God, what if, if my son's you know, exposed to stuff, what have I done? I mean, actually, it's not about me. <laughs> it's yeah. my point earlier, isn't it? That's it's, right. It's focusing on what is the enabling situation before stuff goes wrong that optimizes yeah. the chances of bringing bad stuff in the future happening is my, my sense. So it's very yeah. much going in and making sense. Thank you. Um, yeah. and, and, and on sort of enabling and, and helping. So if I can talk more about drug fam, um, obviously you've alluded to some of the, the very important things you do. Um, so, so would you mind sort of elaborating on who, you know, who does the charity speak to? And, and what, what different forms does that sort of contact and communication take? Okay, um, yes. Effectively, we work in three areas. Um, supporting families where there's um, active addiction going on. And um, I call that um, when they're going through what's called a living loss. Family members and loved ones will talk about how the person has changed and um, they're not the person that they used to be because um, it may be that um, they've got mental health issues because of using um, cocaine, um, alcohol, cannabis, skunk, that kind of thing. So we work in that area and we do that through support groups that we have most nights in the week except Friday. And we have one on a Sunday morning. There are evening support groups that train facilitators, often with lived experience themselves, are running. And um, it gives an opportunity to, for family members to be in a safe, confidential space um, where they can share um, their stories. And there is mutual support, peer support. And these groups form a very strong bond um, with one another and I, I, in our group in the group that I run on a Monday evening it's one of three groups that runs on a Monday evening um, we have somebody who's now a volunteer with us who was in addiction for many years um, he um, was on the streets he was in prison his mother died from alcoholism and so he brings such knowledge in his recovery journey of three and a half years to that meeting um, from, if you like, the addict's head point of view. And it's it's a great bonus to have that um, opportunity of him um, in those particular meetings. And he has, you know, he goes into the other groups as well at times and, and gives them the benefit. Um, because the family members often will say, I really want to understand where my son or daughter's head's coming. Why can't they stop? Why can't they give it up? I don't understand. And so having somebody like our particular volunteer is, is really really beneficial so that is one area where we work we have a lot of work um a lot of call on our time um family members emailing in and ringing in could i join a support group could i talk to somebody people are not ready to join support groups um straight away they like the benefit of one-to-one and they would therefore have either telephone call or zoom um with the um you know particular family support worker that can um can help them so that, that's one area. Um, the other area that we work is um, through our bereaved clients. Um, and 
I think, as I said earlier, we've got over 160 now since lockdown began. And over the years, obviously, we'll be coming up to our 14th annual national annual bereavement conference in 2022. Um, you know, many, many families have come to us um, having lost um, a loved one. Um, one uh, young lady spoke at our conference in 2019 about the loss of three brothers and the impact that, that had had on her. Three. Three brothers she lost, yes. Three brothers. Um, so, you know, there are families where there are more than one loss um, and multiple losses. And, you know, to it's a privilege to to work with them. And again, we have a small team within DrugFam who work closely together to offer um, these families the opportunity to meet, um, particularly since lockdown, to meet on Zoom. Yes. Um, we've got a meeting next um, Tuesday afternoon um, for those who've lost a sibling or a partner or a parent, um, as opposed to the one that we'll do in December, which those who've lost a son or a daughter. Um, so we work with the bereaved and um, we, I'm, I'm what, what is called a um, bereavement support worker because that's my area of expertise and my area of resilience, and my area of understanding. And I work closely with two colleagues in that area. But we also, I also um, work on the, develop the, the programme for our annual bereavement conference every year. We just had one in October called um, Lockdown Volume and Loss. And that was a very powerful conference um, with people sharing their experiences. And um, one of the things that um, was a huge eye opener was the amount of young people who were losing their lives through gambling. And we have we had representatives from Gambling with Lives who came to talk about the amount of young men in particular who've taken their lives as a result of um, gambling, the gambling apps on their phones. Yeah. And, um, you know, through its promotion on the TV as well. Yeah. And I should imagine that it, it's kind of the, the use of the technology getting more and more sophisticated and handheld and it's accessible. And it's, yes. As well as social media, because I know it, Netflix did an interesting profile on um, the, the effects of mental health of the likes of Facebook, Instagram. Uh, That's right. Um, That's right. So I should imagine that this is now kind of exploding in terms of the, the, the dynamics of lockdown. Yes. Yeah, absolutely right, um, Helen, because um, one, of the, one of the things that I'm always keen to point out to parents is that it's a very different world of technology now than it was when I was going through this um, experience because we didn't have the Instagrams and the Snapchats and the Twitters um, and the yes. Facebooks in the same way that they used. And I think I've already sent you a copy of the emojis um, that um, are evidence-based um, research about how young people are drawn into um, buying drugs through, through emojis that appear on on you know, platforms like Snapchat and Instagram. Yeah, it's it, 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 it's shocking and mm. and and it's so hard to control, isn't it? Very much so. Very much so. So um, it, it's almost like, um, from my perspective, as somebody now who 
um, is many years on from tragedy, it is to embrace and understand what is happening out there, which makes the world dangerous for young people in terms of the drugs, alcohol and the gambling, mm-hmm. and to educate um, parents and, and young people um, about you know where they could, where they can be caught and end up mm. in very very negative situations and the impact of course that it has on the families because that is our strap line you know what what we do what can we do to support the family members who turn to us we don't work with those who have the addictions because there are so many other agencies that yeah. are doing that our expertise is with families and the friends and the partners and so on and um, just touching on what you said about kind of, kind of the groups and people coming together, I, I, I hear you um, from kind of the personal therapy angle and, and resilience and how you practice yourself. And I understand the power of talking to individual. Um, and I've done that myself. And now in terms of what interests me is, is support groups. And there clearly is a power of meeting people who've been through the same sort of experience, be that with a drug family, I don't know, Alcoholics Anonymous, or there's something in sort of shared experience, isn't there? Could, could you talk a bit more around that? Yes, of course. I mean, the the area of um, shared or lived experience is, is, very, um, is very important because um, where I came from um, was a place of isolation and loneliness because there wasn't anybody to talk to because of the shame and the stigma that go around in circles with this with this whole area of the use of the word addict um, and the use of the word drugs, alcohol and so on. And so to give families members or mums or dads or whoever grandparents a safe space to talk within a group um, uh, is, is a very important thing to do. And what happens is that these groups build uh, trust um, and respect um, and confidentiality, which um, gives them a lifeline. They know that every, every Monday, if they wish to go to that group, that they can they can do that. Um, and it, I think it's it's very important to talk and to be open and to know that that's what is said in the Zoom at the moment. It remains in the Zoom. Um, and what is said in the rooms are remains in the room. Um, so, a very valuable work that all our um, facilitators do and they have the appropriate training as well because you, it's very important to learn how to manage a group um, and so on so yeah yeah no I get that and um, yeah I, I think that when people sort of talk about it or saying well you don't understand well you know it's sometimes probably is a fair point you can try and empathize yeah um, but I, I suspect in some cases there are times when actually you do need someone who says, well, actually, no, I do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And in- um, um, sorry. I was just going to add on to, so I've spoken about working with families where there is, if you like, the living loss, and then we work with the families where there is the final loss. And then yes. our third branch really is the educational work. Um, that we do and that historically has been through um, doing presentations in schools which have built up over the years um, where I'm now talking about you know do you understand about Xanax um, do you understand about um, a whole range of things that I bring up pictures of um, on the screen um, 
so that young people can visually see this is what you could be offered. Yeah. And it's not in a package <laughs> like aspirin or paracetamol. Um, see this little clear bag that's got white stuff in it or brown stuff in it. This is what could lead to, and I've got, you know, the images of the impact that it's had on um, my own family, but also others um, as well. And so that educational work is really very important. The book was adapted as a play back in 2012 and um, travelled many schools and many prisons um, very successfully until 2017. And then three of the cast members um, developed their own theatre company called It Is What It Is Productions and rewrote play to last for an hour with an add-on workshop within the school framework as well but um of course covid's kind of paid to that at the moment but we're looking to um uh, perform it um so that people can access it online brilliant oh i mean and, and, and obviously prevention goes out of saying it's far greater than cure isn't it so yes yeah i think um just raising the levels of a, of awareness amongst the parents who are often very naive and the reality to to the pupils. Um, and actually, when we've taken it into the prisons in the past, it's been received so positively with, with the prisoners that it is absolutely spot on. Um, and we've developed, you know, very good relations with the prisons over the month, over the years. Really, we've had prison art competitions where, having seen the play, they've been given the opportunity to do some artwork to um, talk about or write about, draw, sculpt the impact um, of addiction on them and their families, and some really good pictures um, that I use um, in my presentation to show. The reality of it. Yeah. So that's for me. It's three clear, three clear um, areas of work: living loss, the actual loss, and the education. And I suppose that's what drives me as a teacher um, to do what I do, a retired teacher now, um, because um, I know the journey of keeping all of that hidden um, from my colleagues and from my pupils and from the. Um, board of Governors thinking, oh, what will everybody think of me if they find out that I have addiction in my family? I've got to hide it. And that drives you into that place of loneliness and isolation that actually I'm encouraging people never to be in. Yeah, yeah. And and, and obviously with the work that you've done, um, you, you also have some fantastic recovery stories. Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, would you mind sharing one of those? No, it's confidentiality, but just so people know that it is possible <laughs> to have a positive light at the end of the tunnel, eh? Most definitely, most definitely. Um, there is a rehab not, not very far from where I live um, where um, we see wonderful stories of recovery. And I think it's very important not to be dark and negative, that, you know, if you have a loved one in who has a problem, um who could be a high-functioning addict or who has got very serious addiction problems, that it doesn't need to be the end of the world, not to give up hope. But they ultimately, it is 
their addiction that they must take responsibility for and come to a point of wanting to have their own journey of recovery, which they're not doing for anybody else, to please their mum, to please their dad, brother or sister, but to do it for themselves, to become abstinent and to find freedom from that lifestyle. And certainly, you know, I, I've been supporting a young man um, that I'm ha- very happy to mention. Um, he's called Matt Ingram, Ingram and he's um, about to release his book called Endless Possibilities. And he's sharing his journey um, from... Uh, you know, very difficult addiction to um, freedom. And now his website, Endless Possibilities, is one that I would recommend. Um, and he's doing brilliantly. Oh, fantastic. Oh. And I know lots of other people like that as well. Um, there's another young man who's set up um, Hope and Vision Communities. It's a website worth looking at where I was at an event that he was at um, Two, two, three weeks ago, where um, you know he he'd been sent to prison many times and had had very difficult experiences in his life, and suddenly he was driven that he wanted to change, and he approached the judge that was actually uh, known for sending him to prison on many occasions and asked him to be the patron of the charity. And now he's doing great work um, at trying to provide within Berkshire support and help for those who are coming out of rehabs um so that they can move on with their lives yeah yeah i oh, think uh, i think i think it was um Anne frank that said that she believes at heart that everybody is a good person and i think that um that is true yeah absolutely i completely agree elizabeth um so so we'll we'll, we'll start to move to, to, towards closing and, and and i think it's a, a really possible like to end with with where we began with you and uh, and just really ask about kind of self-care and resilience and you know if, if there were key top tips if you like for that what what would what would you recommend well um every every call that i take if i'm on phone, phone duty or every email that i receive from somebody, family member who's desperate, I always come back to them and say, it is so important to talk. Don't bottle it in. Try to avoid bottling it in. If it's a situation where you can share that with a husband or a partner, um, if you've got your worries and so on, please do. Um, Because self-care and developing emotional resilience, um, as well as um, understanding that sometimes you have to put boundaries in place and say that you won't accept certain types of behaviour. Um, if you've got somebody living at the house with you who, who is using, is very, very important because if nothing changes, nothing changes. And if you allow, as many, many um, recovering addicts have said to me, if you allow yourself to enable and continue to enable, continue to rescue, um, that's no good for you. The situation is going to continue, whereas looking after yourself, having that emotional understanding of personal resilience, um, understanding that you didn't cause this, you can't cure it, you can't control it, you can take care of yourself and communicate your feelings and um, have a have a really positive outlook on life. It's, it's very, very important. 
to do. Superb. Thank you. So well put, as, as ever. <laughs> thank you, Elizabeth, and, and thank you to everyone who's listened. If you'd like to find out more about the work of DrugFam, you can visit www.drugfam.co.uk. And if you'd like to read more about Elizabeth and her son, Nick, her book, Mum, You Lend Me 20 Quid, is out now, and I could not recommend it more. Thank you.